Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Episode 136, Why You Should Fish Rocky Mountain National Park. Why You Should Fish Rocky Mountain National Park. Where is Rocky Mountain National Park, you may ask? Well, I assume by the name you have an idea of the region where you could find said national park. But I think most of you know it's in Colorado because Rocky Mountain National Park consistently ranks in the top five most visited national parks in the entire country. It's estimated a couple years ago that nearly five million people visited Rocky Mountain National Park. It is situated only about an hour and a half from Denver and the town of Estes Park on the east side of Rocky Mountain National Park and Grand Lake on the west side are both perfectly reasonable and fine destinations on their own right. It is a beautiful place, given it is a lot less wild in the sense that you're going to be sharing it with lots of people, but at the same time, you're getting that full Rocky Mountain experience in a very, very convenient location. And there are plenty of places within the park where you can feel very secluded, where you're not next to a road, where you're not next to a tour bus, where there's probably not even that many other people on the trail. But for a family or for somebody who is just in the area or passing through, Rocky Mountain National Park is more than sufficient to get your Rocky Mountain fix, including fly fishing. We'll get to that in a second. I love Rocky Mountain National Park. It holds a special place in my heart because it was my first exposure to the West. It was my first exposure to the Rocky Mountains. It was my first exposure to Western fly fishing. It was my first exposure to really anything different than I had been used to growing up in the Midwest and living on the East Coast. I'd been to see big mountains before. I've been to Europe and Asia and and seen big mountains there, but it was awesome for me to finally get a chance, almost I think I was 20 by the time I got out west, and Rocky Mountain National Park is the first place that I went. Uh, it was great to see the wild sheep, and to see elk, and to see mule deer, and to see pika, and to see all sorts of other critters that I had only seen in pictures and on National Geographic. And those animals are plentiful. You're going to see them. You might not see a moose, you might not see a black bear, but everything else I mentioned previously, you're probably going to have a chance to see those along with a number of other rodents and birds and the like. But of course, this is the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast, not the Casting Across Birding Podcast, so we're going to talk a little bit about fly fishing. 
And there are plenty of opportunities, as I said, in and around Rocky Mountain National Park to go fishing. In fact, it is an incredibly simple DIY fly fishing location. Now, there are guides in those cities, or excuse me, towns that I mentioned earlier, Estes and Grand Lake. There are fly shops, and there are plenty of people that will gladly take you out if you want to find a little bit more solitude or if you want to be put into a high percentage spot. But in my experience, as somebody who's simply gotten online, followed blue lines on maps, everywhere I've gone in Rocky Mountain National Park, I have found fish. I've found rainbow trout, I've found brook trout, but I've also found cutthroat trout. And the exciting thing about the area is that there are different opportunities for fly fishing within a short drive of the visitor centers. And the visitor centers being just excellent. Even in the, the like 10 years since I've kind of gone on and off to Rocky Mountain National Park, they've been improved. And, and I think that's consistent with a lot of the well-traveled and well-visited national park visitor centers that I've had experience with around the country. It's something that I do not mind my tax dollars going towards, having nice visitor centers at national parks, especially ones that are well-traveled. Because if you've been to some that have, have beaten up old visitor centers, you can appreciate why it's nice to have something bright and shiny and clean and educational and engaging, especially if you have small children. And you know what? I know I'm kind of dancing around and going a little bit on tangents here. We'll get back to the different opportunities for fly fishing in a second. But I found that national park rangers have a lot of information on fishing, even if they're that's not their thing. I mean, they get people that walk up and say, where can I catch a fish? So they know the regulations, they know the rules, they know the spots, and they can eye you up and then listen to you and realize, you know, this person's probably not going to want to hike a thousand feet up. This person's probably looking for uh, a particular situation and, and they're able to guide you. So they are a resource. That's what they're there for. They can give you the history. They can give you the ecology. They can talk about wildlife. They can make all sorts of recommendations. And although they're not fly fishing guides, they can probably give you a good bearing on some decent fly fishing. So keep that in mind. Anyway, back to opportunities within Rocky Mountain National Park. I kind of divide them into three main opportunities and three main places that, that I've fished. And of course, there's variations on these themes, um, but there are the high gradient waters, there are the meadow streams, and then there are the ponds. So of course, you could probably break these down into some subcategories also. So when I talk about high gradient streams, we are talking about rocky mountain waters, not rocky mountains like the Rocky Mountains, but like tumbling streams, the same kind of streams that you have anywhere where you have a hillside where that water is freestone water that is tumbling down the side of a hill. And in you're getting those plunge pools, you're getting quick runs to another plunge pool, and you're able to fish that in a very sequential manner. Some of the bigger rivers that you'll find are like the Fall River, Black Canyon Creek, and the Big Thompson. And actually, the Big Thompson presents another kind of neat opportunity because the Big Thompson flows into Estes Park where it hits the impounded Lake Estes 
and then it flows along Route 34 down to Loveland. Now, uh, the Big Thompson River here is interesting because uh, there was a massive flood when there was a failure of a previous dam, and it actually led to a number of fatalities. But this is a pretty awesome drive to drive from Loveland up into uh, Estes Park. But that water, it's outside of the park proper. It's to the, to the east. Of, uh, of the park itself, but this is a relatively big river, especially by kind of Eastern standards, and it's long, miles and miles of fishable trout water. So you don't even have to pay to get into the park. You don't have to, uh, you know, find parking. There's parking all up and down Route 34, and you can pull over as long as you're, you're able to, as long as you're not on somebody's property, you're sitting on the highway itself, and you can fish, and you will see dozens of anglers, but that doesn't mean there's not space for you. And these are big pools. These are big runs. These are long riffles. You can then spend an entire day fishing this and there'll be cars just up the hill kind of running alongside of you, but you're going to be into all sorts of fish and, and there are cutthroats and there are browns and there are brookies and rainbows all in this water. But anyway, that's one of the, the larger kind of high gradient waters, but there's plenty along the other three that I mentioned. So there's an entire patchwork of watersheds that are running through this park because we have these big glaciers on top of these incredibly tall 14,000 foot mountains and there are trickling down and creating some consistent and constant flows where you're going to be able to hike up and the further you get away from the people the more pristine and the more virgin you're going to find these waters. Now we're not talking about some place where you're having to hike 5 or 10 or 15 miles and getting true seclusion. You know, you can find that elsewhere in the state, but that's going to take work. That's going to take effort. You are going to find seclusion. You are going to be able to find water that no one else has probably fished in the last few weeks or maybe even months if you put a little work in, but you don't have to do that. You can go five minutes off of the trail and you might find some fish that haven't been seen a fly in a week or, you know, there's plenty of places that you and I probably fish where fish are seeing flies every week and they're still willing to hit. So hike up the mountain, uh, be safe about it, but you'll be able to find fish that are ready and willing and opportunistically hitting anything fluffy that you throw at them. That being said, they're not dumb. Even though kind of you know mountain brook trout and mountain cutthroat have this reputation for hitting anything that lands in the water, they are going to be discerning. Uh, I've had days where I've had to match the hatch. I've had days up there where I've had to really dial in a pattern that exactly what the fish want. So for every kind of dumb mountain trout or incredibly opportunistic mountain trout that you have, there are other fish that are really keyed in on one particular pattern or one particular presentation. So keep that in mind. So the second kind of stream or opportunity that is available is meadow streams. So there are these creeks that are flowing down the sides of the hills and then they end up in the valley. And once they make it to the valley, they smooth out for a period of time. It could be for miles or it could be just for a few hundred yards. But this presents a little bit of a different opportunity for you. And even within that kind of sub-genre of uh, water opportunities in the park, there's a couple of different environments. There are smooth, flowing meadow streams that meander and kind of web and weave an 
out of meadows where there are kind of um, muddy and gravelly bottoms and just high grasses and there's little channels and side channels and there's some really cool spots here because if you've ever fished like a spring creek for example you know that a fish of considerable size will gladly move into a side channel as long as there's consistent flow as long as food is getting brought towards that fish and so if it's grasshoppers or it's other um, macro invertebrates that are living in the creek those fish really don't care that they are in a relatively tight location as long as they can get in and out of it and they can find shelter and that food is being consistent so especially in a season where there's maybe hoppers that are that are up on the uh, the grasses in those meadows those little side channels that you can step over still contain decent sized fish which could be a 14 or 16 inch cutthroat so those are definitely worth checking out but there's also other meadow styles creeks that flow through trees and flow through some uh, hardwoods or some um, pines, uh, some aspen groves, and those are going to provide that cover and that shade, and you're able to kind of work through them as you would through any other freestone stream. And it, it's neat because at the end of the day, it's going to be the same fish that you're going to be finding up on the hillsides, maybe not as many of the um, wild or native cutthroat, and that's an entirely different story that I don't think I'm going to go into today regarding greenback cutthroats and their reintroduction or their their rediscovery and where they actually exist as pure greenback cutthroats or not. But that's something worth checking into and, and reading about. But uh, by and large, I've encountered many more brook trout uh, in in some of these uh, flatter uh, environments, which you know, being an East Coast angler isn't super exciting. At the same time, it's fish, and you learn kind of where the different species are, and you talk to guides, and you read up on the internet, and you talk to park rangers, and they'll point you in the right direction of where you are able to find the different species. But all that to say is that if you only have a few minutes and you pull off the side of the road, and while your family has a picnic lunch, you hop over to a stream that's flowing through a meadow, and you're still within eyesight of your family, or you're just you know through a couple of groves of trees, you can get into fish very easily. They're all over the place. Um, and this presents another opportunity that might not be as rigorous of a walk or a climb for folks who might have some mobility impairments or simply just don't want to go up high into the woods. So we have the high gradient streams that are right there in the park. We have some of the meadow streams that are in the park, and then we have the lakes and ponds. And these are spread out all over the place. You have some that are very easily accessible for most tourists. There are shuttles and buses that run to like Bear Lake and Sprague Lake and others that are in the park, but you're maybe only a one mile hike away from getting to a lake and being all by yourself. And some of them are small, they're ponds, they're an acre or less, but virtually all of them hold fish. And once again, there's guides that you can access that tell you which fish are in which lakes and which ones are managed for more wild fisheries, ones that are introducing other fish so that they can be more easily accessible to people. But if you like fishing still water, then these are great opportunities probably to get into some bigger fish as well. Uh, I've definitely seen some larger fish that in these lakes than I have seen in these small creeks. And it gives you, again, another opportunity. And these, these lakes, 
you know, if you're an East Coast angler, they provide you with something that's different, especially if you are fishing in the Appalachians uh, proper. There's not as many little ponds, especially kind of in the mid-Atlantic. Once you get up to New England, we have quite a few ponds uh, around here. But if you are going to be traveling, you might want to try something new and different. So it's a lot of fun to climb uphill and all of a sudden you pop through some pine trees and you see a couple acre lake that is completely pristine and you see little sips going on all around the perimeter and maybe even out in the middle. But again, you know, if this is something new to you, then you want to make sure that you are taking it easy. Uh, you're at elevation. It is going to be a little bit more work to get up there. So if you're going to Rocky Mountain National Park, what should you bring? I like bringing an eight and a half foot five weight, an eight and a half foot five weight. Eight and a half feet is awfully long for a river that has close canopy, but in a lot of those mountain streams that have the high gradient, you're not as closed in in most places. You're able to make those casts. And so eight and a half feet really isn't that big of a deal. Also, I like the flexibility of having that eight and a half foot rod. If I do fish on those meadow streams where I need to cast a little bit further because the fish are a little bit more wary, I don't have the broken water and the plunge pools and the gradient to hide myself. So I do need to make a little bit longer casts. But also if I'm on that still water, the longer rod is always going to be better for you. You're able to not just control your cast, but you can control your back cast or your casting you know, over streamside vegetation um, and putting the that back cast in a safe place so that you can make that long cast if you're not hiking up with a float tube or something like that. So I also like a five weight because it gives me that flexibility to cast whatever I need to cast. I can cast those small 16 and 18 parachute dry flies that I'm going to want to be fishing if I'm fishing a high gradient stream. But it also gives me enough backbone to cast a streamer in a still water or a big hopper on one of those meadow streams. And as I've said before, and, and much smarter anglers than I have said, um, you're still going to feel the fish. And an eight and a half foot five weight, a contemporary lightweight eight and a half foot five weight is still going to feel a 10 inch fish throbbing at the end uh, when it's it's fighting. So I like using the eight and a half foot five weight. As far as leaders and tippets go, um, I stick with kind of my normal stuff, 4X for uh, streamers and 5 and 6X for nymphs and dry flies. I keep my tippets longer the slower the water is, kind of as a general rule. I think that's something that, you know, I apply in almost every situation. The more still the water and the more still the fly, the longer the leader and tippet. So if I'm fishing those still waters with a dry fly, I'm probably going to like a 16 foot leader. The same thing if I'm fishing a meandering mountain stream, I'm going to be fishing with a 16-foot leader, and that includes the tippet. But if I'm fishing a streamer on one of those ponds, or if I'm fishing on those uh, pocket water on the uh, plunge pools in the high gradient stream, 
I can go down to 12 feet or even 10 feet and I think I'm going to be okay. So just, you know, have a couple of spools and have a couple of extra leaders handy. It's also really helpful, and this is just a good traveling idea, is to have poly leaders. These are the kind of five to six foot weighted leader sections that you can put on the end of a loop-to-loop -loop fly line and then attach your leader to the end of it. This turns that floating fly line into a sink tip fly line. It's kind of quick and dirty. It's kind of wonky for casting, but that's another reason why I want to be fishing with a five weight because it's going to have the backbone to throw uh, a couple of decent feet worth of a poly leader and still you're going to have a little bit of control. But that way you're not having to carry an extra spool for what may or may not be a method of fishing you end up using. So go with that. And then as far as flies go, hopping out a fly shop. Uh, Kirk's Fly Shop is the first one that comes to mind. I think that was the first fly shop that I went to when I was in Estes Park. But there's a handful of other ones in Estes as well as the surrounding areas. Or even in Denver, after you land or wherever you're coming from, stop at the fly shop and ask what they're hitting up in the mountains. And they will have plenty of suggestions for you. But I like starting with generic flies and going from there. So it's my normal stuff. I like fishing parachute atoms. I like fishing big chubby grasshoppers. I like woolly buggers. I like beetles. And then I like pheasant tails, hare's ears. And then you want to mix it up. If there's something else that is your go-to confidence fly wherever you fish, there's a good chance that if you have the right presentation, you're going to be able to catch fish with that because there's a lot of opportunistic hungry fish in Rocky Mountain National Park. I do not like traveling with waders and boots if I'm just going to be fishing casually or if I'm fishing in environments like this. If it is late in the season, even that glacial water, if it's hot in August, you're going to be okay wet wading. Uh, you're going to be okay fishing on the sides of a lot of these rivers. River crossings might get a little bit wonky. In fact, there was one day where I was in tennis shoes uh, fishing all morning, and I had hopped from rock to rock all day, stayed totally dry, and it was kind of that, like, all right, this is my last cast moment. I wanted to get in the perfect position, and my right foot slid down the side of a rock that I was on, and I got both legs completely wet up to, like, mid-thigh. Um, but you know what? my shoes dried off. It wasn't the end of the world. And in hindsight, and even in that moment, I was happy I didn't pack waders and boots just for a couple days of fishing. Those tennis shoes dried off by the time uh, the next morning rolled around. But I know there's a lot more information that you can get, but go find it yourself. The reason being, it's all out there. I am not the expert on Rocky Mountain National Park. I'm certainly not an expert on Western fly fishing. It's just a place that a lot of people go. There's a good chance you have been or will be one of those 5 million plus visitors that the Rocky Mountain National Park sees this year or in the coming years. So definitely make it part of your trip. If it's a family trip, try to get out for a morning. If you are going to do something in the area for business or for some other reason, just try to get away for the day. It's definitely worthwhile. It's a beautiful place. It is not as wild as other parts of the Rockies, but it is still worth your time, energy, and effort, and packing a fly rod. This week on Casting Across, two really fun articles. The first one is called Altoona Brookies, Square Tails on the Diamond. Altoona Brookies, Square Tails on the Diamond. Last year, I wrote about the Altoona Curve, the AA affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates, 
rebranding as the Altoona Brookies for a weekend. Well, last year, not only did that promotion not happen, but the entire minor league season was canceled due to the pandemic. But the response to the promotion was so great that even without the team taking the field for the season, they sold out of their Brookies-themed gear. So they definitely brought it back this year. So I actually talked to uh, some folks in management at uh, the Altoona Curve, and they gave me some information on the Brookies weekend. So I put that in an article. If you're not from the area, uh, definitely just check it out uh, so you can see what a minor league ball club that's doing for conservation. But if you are in western Pennsylvania, it would be a great way to spend a weekend in the summer. My Wednesday article is called Rusty Flybox True Companions, and this is a anthology set of fly rod reviews from three fly rods, all three of them being at least 20 years old. But these are three rods that I use and love and absolutely uh, fish as much as, if not more than, every other rod in my quiver. So Rusty Flybox True Companions, a celebration of some of my favorite fly rods. This week's recommendation on the podcast is the America the Beautiful Pass. The America the Beautiful Pass. And this links into what I was talking about with Rocky Mountain National Park because the America the Beautiful Pass is the Department of the Interior's pass to get you on all National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Reclamation, U.S. Forest Service, and U.S. Army Corps of Engineers sites. There's a lot of of properties that you can access for $80 a year. My family gets this every year and we get our money's worth easily. Where I live, uh, I'm close to White Mountain National Forest and then there is a wildlife refuge that is also very close to me where I do a lot of striper fishing and we do stuff on the beach. Just those two annual passes alone would be $75. So for five more dollars, I have unlimited access to any other park that we go to. We Virginia vacation a lot, which means that I'm at the Shenandoah. Uh, There's so many other national parks that we stop at just for the day because we can uh, with this pass. It's a great thing to have in the vehicle as you're driving across country or as you're planning your vacations. Uh, If you have a child who is in fourth grade, uh, going into fourth grade this coming year at the point in time of this recording, you get a free America the Beautiful pass for your family. You just got to go to uh, nationalparkservice.gov or one of the other uh, federal agencies that I mentioned earlier, and you can apply for the America the Beautiful pass for your fourth grader. It's a great thing that the Department of the Interior has to offer us. So I'll put a link to uh, a page for the America the Beautiful pass. It's a great thing for an angler to have uh, on him or her so that you can go all sorts of places where you can fish on the land that you own. Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. (music) 